women care about their companies investing in them. They want to advance in companies, but they also want some assistance along the way. Welcome to Manufacturing Happy Hour, the podcast where we get real about the latest trends and technologies impacting modern manufacturers. Manufacturing Happy Hour. Each week, we interview industry experts that are at the top of their craft and give you the tools, tactics, and strategies you need to take your career and your business to the next level. And now your host, Chris Lukey. Episode 154. Today, we're discussing how women are thriving in the manufacturing workforce. Our guest this week is Allison Grayless. She's the president and founder of Women in Manufacturing. Women in Manufacturing, also referred to as WIM, is a more than 20,000-member strong global trade association committed to supporting, promoting, and inspiring women who have selected careers in manufacturing. Now, I've interacted with this group more than a few times in my career, and they are awesome. Whenever I've been a part of one of their events or when they've been a part of a manufacturing happy hour event, they've brought a ton of energy insights, and amazing women that add a lot to our manufacturing communities. There's plenty more to say about the programs they offer, their membership, all that good stuff, which Allison is going to tell you about very soon. So with all that said, it's probably a good time to jump into the three things you can expect from today's episode. First, we'll get to know Allison and her unique path that led her to creating women in manufacturing. Second, we'll hear how women have been advancing in the manufacturing workforce, and Allison will share the type of actions we can all be taking to continue that trend. Finally, we talk specifically about women in manufacturing as an organization, and we'll get some of Allison's thoughts on the future of women in industry. As always, if you want to learn more, head over to the show notes page at manufacturinghappyhour.com slash 154. If you enjoy this episode, if you think someone in your network should hear it, if you want to email it to a friend, well, hey, do that, email it, post it on LinkedIn, make sure to tag myself, tag Allison. We would love to engage and we greatly appreciate it when you spread the word. If you're loving this podcast, hey, make sure you've left that five-star rating and review over at Spotify, over on iTunes, wherever you're listening to this podcast, that always helps get this show on the map. All right, it's time to jump into our conversation and a virtual vacation with Allison Grayless. Allison, welcome to Manufacturing Happy Hour. I know we're doing this interview remotely today, but if we were in person, anywhere in the world, having this conversation over a beverage, where would that be? Paint the picture. Yeah, so my favorite places to be are on beaches. So I love the sun. I love being near the water. So I would say being in a beach chair on a lovely sandy white beach would be ideal. And my beach drink of choice would probably be um, perhaps a mojito or a margarita. Um, I also have not gotten into high noons. So I think one of those three would be absolutely wonderful on a beach. So let's say we're on a beach having mojitos and someone asks you this question, hey, what does women in manufacturing do? What's the mission? How do you answer that if you're relaxing on the beach? So we are a full service global trade association that year round supports, promotes and inspires women. You know, I'm, I'm interested to get your background before we dive totally into the, the topics today of, you know, what what you're doing specifically. And uh, my first question is, tell us how you went from English pre-law to the industrial space and then on to founding women in manufacturing. That seems like an interesting trajectory. 
Yeah. So when I went to college, I was first um, assuming and planning to be a political science major. So I always had an interest in um, kind of volunteerism and also campaigns and political service and public service. So I thought I would be a poli-sci major when I got to college. I realized that I liked my few in English classes a bit more than I did my political science. So I became an English major and um, still, though, hung on to the pre-law thinking that, um, you know, developing my strong writing skills and communication skills could still help me if I were to go to law school. Um, then senior year, I decided to switch gears. I had taken the LSAT, was planning to go to law school, and had even gotten admitted to a few places, and decided at a career fair, I had come in contact with a not-for-profit that had a really appealing mission. And I said, you know what, I think I want to do this instead. I'll take a year gap before going to law school. And that year gap um, turned into 22 years. <laughs> I have still not, never made my way to law school. Um, but alternatively, I found working for, um, at that time, a not-for-profit, and then after grad school, finding trade associations, um, that worked to be most rewarding to me. So I know it's odd. I mean, I, I've never myself held a manufacturing position, uh, and I'm kind of jealous, though, of all the women who do hold these amazing manufacturing positions. And I think had I known about manufacturing, I maybe would have gotten into a manufacturing career um, rather than trade association work. Um, but it's great because I get to work with, you know, women who make things, women who are changing companies and leading companies and and top contributors to all the things we consume. Um, and that English degree, while it might not be totally applicable to what I'm doing right now, um, it's a great foundation. And I would recommend it to many or if not all people to have some type of foundation with grammar and um, writing, because guess what? It's still how a lot of work gets done. And we all need to be able to how to properly use our words and communicate with one another. Um, so it was a great foundational skill set for me as I'm now leading a trade association. Yeah, it's funny. When I was in college, I quickly, I, and uh, and for context, I'm an engineer. I quickly got pegged as the document guy or the writer in our group projects because I had that skill from my high school English English classes. So no no doubt it comes in handy. And I kind of want to flip flip that on you a little bit too because you say, Hey, I'm always impressed with the women that, you know, came up through manufacturing, have these engineering degrees. I'm curious, though, with your what I would call unique background for this industry, how has that played to your advantage? How has that been a strength for you? Well, I, I you know, I think ha not maybe coming from a traditional science or STEM background and also not not having grown up and or built a career in manufacturing. I think I look at things a bit differently and I think I, I can lend some creative and different insights to what might be the traditional thinking of this industry. So I do think it, it does help to, to kind of complement what has been this very kind of uh, historic regimen and way of thinking and doing things in manufacturing um, to having kind of a, a more arts and sciences background where I understand kind of, I think, a bit broader, these ideas around creativity. And then also my background in community organizing and public service um, really helps as we're trying to achieve work at whim. So, you know, Part of kind of the backgrounds of community organizing and, and grassroots organizing is mobilizing people and helping them work to create and to be very clear on their messaging and, and what are they hoping to achieve. So I think that's really helped us as I built this organization to really grow our community, to grow our reach, to grow the impact that we're having. Um, that background as well has been very helpful. Clarity of communication across what is now a global organization is is no doubt very important. And, and we're going to talk about that here in a little bit. But let's get some of the the early days of women in manufacturing as well. You mentioned you took your gap year, you got into trade associations. How did women in manufacturing evolve out of that career trajectory? Or where did you notice the need for women in manufacturing? 
Yeah, so my, my trade association start was with the Metal Forming Association. And um, interestingly, my, my first role and why I went to that position after grad school was that it was a opportunity to work with their local chapters and or what they call districts. And that was what most excited me because it reminded me of my early days, again, having worked both on my own college campus and then in that grassroots organization I worked with for a year, I was working on campuses with them as well. So I love this concept of now working with adults and getting to travel all over the United States, which as a young 20-something, I hadn't really done a whole bunch of. And so it was amazingly rewarding to get to work with business leaders who were in metal forming companies to help them deliver resources and programming and networking opportunities to their local members. And in doing so, I found that there were more and more women in, in this metal forming space um, that were hungry for, how do I find other people like me? So they would come to meetings and there was a, a majority of men who were in attendance and um, often a small pocket of women. And they said, gosh, are there other, you know, are there any women's groups within your organization? Are there ways in this metal forming group that we can get connected? So we had the great pleasure of having in 2010 for that association, our first and sadly only female um, chair of the board. And she was hugely passionate as well about how do we bring together women in metal forming? So we started some small micro programming for metal, women in metal forming at the time. Um, and when we looked for resources and I went online and I went to call other organizations, and there wasn't a national hub for resources for generally women in manufacturing. So um, we quickly realized, okay, maybe we create our own resources and that own community that can be inclusive of people just not in metal for me, but in all facets of manufacturing. So that's really how the summit was born. So the summit was our first ever conference we produced, and it was meant to be that industry conference for every woman and an ally um, who was connected to manufacturing. And I wasn't sure what the appetite would be or what the response would be um, to this first offering, but that was now 13 years ago. And we had 133 people come from all over the country in all different roles in manufacturing. And they were super excited to see one another, happy to know they weren't alone. And then there was immediate interest in how do I join? So I went back to the office, created a business plan of how membership would be structured and how we would offer programs and would chapters be a thing now or in the future. Um, so that then was born and became then a membership-based organization. For a few years, we kind of figured out our foundational pieces, such as how do we structure ourselves? How do we, again, support members year-round? Um, and that Metal Forming Association, PMA, Precision Metal Forming Association, was hugely um, kind and gracious and supportive to allow us to incubate in their organization for our first early years until we got stood up as a, a full-service standalone trade association. So one question that just popped into my mind based on this story is, what advice do you have to the manufacturing leaders that are listening to this show today about, let's say, noticing a gap in their own business, their own organization, and taking action to address that gap, as I feel like you did with women in manufacturing? So could be general, could be a specific tip, but what advice would you have to get folks to take action when they see a need like you did? Yeah, so I think, you know, when when I noticed there wasn't another resource, I think it was exciting to 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 think about filling that gap and, and to create that solution for our industry and for the companies and for the women, obviously, most importantly, who are connected to the companies. You know, I think companies are always trying to evaluate you know, their expertise, how are they diversifying? But I would encourage manufacturing leaders who, if you identify a gap, you know, first, obviously do your due diligence, which is what I did, making sure that there was not another competitor or organization that was already doing that work 
because I firmly believe in collaboration and not repeating or trying to redo or do better often what other people are doing. So in, alternatively, you know, complementary services, I think, are great for people that are already out there. Um, but if you do find this niche that is not being served and or where there isn't a solution, I would highly encourage companies to, to kind of go for it and to create, um, you know, what could be that solution that they can produce to fill that gap. I mean, there's lots of things out there as we look even present in our landscape of services that are gaps. And so we as a team are now working to say, okay, how in the next few years as we go through our, you know, next three, five years of strategic planning, what are the resources we need to be investing in so that we can fill some of those industry gaps and, and company gaps too. So I would encourage, you know, manufacturing leaders, obviously are many of them and almost all of them are innovative. So as you see those gaps, obviously um, do your due diligence, see if your company could be the, the right um, provider of a solution for that gap and then take action. I like the message you have around collaboration. You looked at what existed to make sure, hey, is this really a gap or is this something that is being addressed? I think that's a great initial litmus test for folks looking to start something and trying to confirm, hey, is this an opportunity for me to, to bring about the solution? So one of my next questions is around how women in manufacturing has evolved. And this is more of a macro question around how women have gotten more in, involved in industry over the past decade. And, and please correct me if any of my stats here are incorrect, but I believe I heard you say that during the time that women in manufacturing has existed, the percentage of women in the manufacturing workforce has gone from 23% to around 30%, some, somewhere in that range. It, can you confirm that? And also, what factors would you say have contributed to that growth? Yeah, I think when, when we first started um, our work, we were about, you know, in the 20-ish, I think it was 25, 23% range, and we have grown to 30%, which is great. Um, but obviously, there's still a whole bunch of work to be done to recruit more women into industry. Um, you know, right now, we, we do see, though, it's interesting is if you look at the Jobs Over Jobs report that was produced, I think about a year ago now, um, from 2010 to 2020, in that 10-year period that we were existing as an organization, um, it just so happens, if you look at data, that women's participation in manufacturing grew at every age level. So during that period, that 10-year gap, that 10-year span, um, women actually grew in manufacturing positions at a higher rate than men. So it's exciting to see that more women entered industry. Obviously, pandemic impacted that in 2020. And sadly, you know, 3 million women left the workforce, some of those being in manufacturing positions. And now we do see them coming back at very healthy numbers. So more women, we do believe, um, have entered manufacturing. It's not all because of our work. And it's not all because of manufacturing immediately switching the dial and now being kind of a known place to, to pursue a career. Um, but I do think improvements have been made. I think that um, more women are learning about manufacturing as a career opportunity and pathway. And hopefully more people are seeing that we are a great support network and entity once they enter a manufacturing position and or profession. So um, there there is an increase, you know, as we look though as a goal as our organization is yes, of course, to get more women in manufacturing careers, but I think equally important to get more women in leadership. So based on the research that we do annually with Thomas, um, with Zometry, Thomas Company, um, we do an annual state of manufacturing and workforce report. It can be found on our website under data and research. Um, but there you can see that, you know, women make up presently um, one in four manufacturing leadership positions. So our goal as an organization is, yes, to get to around 50% of the manufacturing workforce, but equally 10 more women in leadership positions so that we can change companies and cultures and policies and, and obviously be role models for future women to rise up 
in their organizations. I want to go back to one of the things that you stated mid-answer, and that's, you know, there are other factors that have been at play to help grow women in the manufacturing workforce. But I'd love to hear a story about how you've seen your organization be part of that shift. Yeah, so it's been very rewarding to be able to to grow now to almost 22,000 members in every U.S. state and now 50 plus countries. And the number of stories that I've gotten to hear firsthand from women, um, whether it be at our summit or a local chapter meeting to which we've got 32 chapters around the country, um, so many of them have shared and often in an emotional way how they wish women had been there in the early part of their career, but they're so happy that they found us now and how we have made, in many instances, all the difference on your success in rising in their company, um, being able, able to better integrate their personal and professional lives, um, having more confidence as they've looked to, to you know, take advantage of some of the, the posted advancement opportunities in their companies. So we've heard from many in, of our members, very personal stories about how we've impacted and changed their career for the better. And then the same with companies, we've heard such positive feedback from our 400 plus corporate members about how we've changed their organizations for the better, how they now lean on when to specifically stand up or to support their women's ERG groups or to be a critical part of their professional development programming and their pathways. You know, we have three formal leadership programs and so many companies now have plugged into those as one of the milestone investments for a person as they're growing in their company. So again, many testimonials um, that we've heard from both personal individual members and companies about how WIM has transformed them personally and as well um, really helped to transform many of these manufacturing companies. So let's head back to the beach really quickly because you mentioned uh -huh. that Can we <laughs> you mentioned that there are three different leadership tracks you have. I'd love to get like the beach version of, hey, what are what are each of those uh, tracks like or how would you describe them? Because my, my next question will, will play into that a little bit. Yeah. So over time, we have worked very closely with our manufacturing members to help design programs that that match their challenges that they have in their workforce issues. So we have a program for early career managers. We have a program for women in production and a program for executive level women. And we know there are still gaps. So we're working to evolve to, on the educational front, create new programs and or companion or complementary programs for those existing educational resources. So um, it's great because we're trying to meet women where they are and help them it, um, as they are looking for, again, those resources to be that best frontline individual or that best manager or that best executive. So the goal is to have the right um, faculty curriculum and um, guidance, support, and assessments and coaching that's going to help them at all those different levels. Well, I love hearing that you have those different programs at all the different levels, production, executive track. I think when some people hear of organizations, they think, oh, this is like the executive organization, right? But you're truly doing it across the manufacturing ecosystem and empowering women in all the different areas of manufacturing that you can work We'll be right back, right after a word from our sponsor. Are you stressed out by last minute changes in panel building? Maybe you've encountered this scenario. Your customer has requested control cabinets from you and the delivery date is set. You use CAD to create the schematics, you've got your bill of materials, purchasing buys all the components, and then bam, your customer submits last minute changes and you're stuck going backwards to make those changes. If you've been in this situation before, then you need to check out ePlan. ePlan goes beyond your typical CAD software and is ideal for electrical engineering. 
You can easily integrate component data from hundreds of manufacturers and enter changes just once and apply those changes to the entire project, freeing up your time to take on more important tasks and more customers. You can learn more by going to manufacturinghappyhour.com slash ePlan and make sure to catch our full-length interview with them in episode 132, where we talk panel design, apprenticeships, and manufacturing the world over. And now, back to today's episode. The, the next question I have is really kind of, let's take this to an organizational level. Again, thinking about the people that are listening to this podcast Based on the shift that you're seeing and the work that you've done, the progress you've made, what advice do you have for the leaders that want to meaningfully increase the amount of women in their organization and also their path for career advancement once they're there? Yeah. So again, I, I would cite that survey as a great guidepost for, for what women are looking for in manufacturing careers. So again, annually, we survey women in industry. Um, now, for the past three years, they've told us pretty much the same thing. And so I would advise manufacturing leaders to, to to maybe heed this advice or this feedback from the female workforce that's currently in manufacturing. So when we talk to our manufacturing members, um, the, the key things that they're looking for in manufacturing, um, one is flexibility. And we know that's a, not just a female issue, but a male issue and all gender issue. Um, so I would encourage companies to look at how can you impart flexibility in your workforce for, for your entire workforce, um, because we know that, again, pandemic has caused all of us to revisit and reevaluate our work-life integration and balance and prioritization of things. So I would I talk to manufacturers, and I do talk to manufacturing leaders frequently about flexibility and how can it be done and how can it be delivered to people in production-level roles, and management roles, executive roles. Um, there's different restrictions and challenges with all of that. Um, but companies are getting really creative. So to keep a current workforce and to recruit a, a current workforce and advance them, flexibility has got to be something that manufacturing leaders are thinking about. The other um, is professional development, leadership development. So our members continually tell us they want access to leadership development opportunities and training. They want companies to invest in that. So it could be through very formalized programs. It could be with executive programs. Um, it can even be something that's homegrown within their own organization. Um, you know, women care about their companies investing in them. And again, I think it's an all-employee desire and interest, but I, we know that our female members have told us that. So they want to advance the companies, but they also want some assistance along the way. So that's important. We've also seen women citing, you know, examples of how that's getting done through, you know, formal mentorship programs. Uh, formal coaching is really important. And we've also integrated coaching into all of our formal leadership programs because we know coaching can make all the difference um, for a person as they're looking to rise in their company. And the other thing that that members, female members, have told us that they're looking for in companies as it relates to advancement is, you know, having those opportunities. So having opportunities for, you know, expat assignment, having opportunities for, um, you know, to be considered for for advancements and for new job opportunities. So you know, being considered. Um, and, and I would encourage manufacturing leaders don't make decisions for other people without them having input. So sadly, over the course of time and historically. A lot of times, you know, advancement and promotion discussions happen behind closed doors. And, you know, you may look at a female top performer and high po person and say, gosh, I don't think she's right for this assignment in, in uh, you know, India because she's got two kids under the age of five. I don't think this is a good time for her. And they make a decision to take her out of the running without even talking to that candidate. So I, I, would, I would encourage companies and manufacturing leaders to, to reevaluate and think about how are you making advancement decisions in your organizations? How are you hiring people? 
is there bias in the way that you're making those promotion decisions and those hiring decisions? And I would highly ask um, manufacturing leaders to not make decisions for others without letting them weigh in. You know, that female might be very ready for an expat assignment, an overseas assignment, um, an opportunity, and she may have all of the infrastructure she needs and support to be able to take care to, of those two young kids. So I would encourage company leaders to think about that uh, because it's holding a lot of women back from advancing because they're not even knowing that they were a candidate um, and that decision's being made for them. So I got flexibility, having development plans, not making career advancement decisions behind closed doors, being transparent with that. Those are, I love all that advice. And, I, and I'm, my next question, I don't want to say what's a common mistake you see companies make, but based on what you see, what is a small tweak companies can make to move things in the right direction? Because if I'm thinking about it, putting together like a formal mentorship develop, uh, program or a development program, that's something people should do, but it's probably not the immediate thing that they can change to make meaningful changes within their organization, if you will. So what's like a small tweak to get things going in the right direction, would you say? You know, I think companies, we're seeing more and more companies investing, for example, in professional development for women and for all of their employees. And what's happening there where we're seeing a disconnect is that companies are sending people through programs and then their people come back inspired, excited, um, really jazzed about their role and how they're going to change as a, a leader and or contributor. And then unfortunately, the company isn't matching with kind of changing and being open to change when this person comes back, all jazzed up from their experience. So I think it's one of those things where companies need to be always evolving and then as well being receptive to feedback when an employee comes back, for example, from a professional development course or from training to be open to listening to ideas and suggestions in ways that maybe that company can be a bit more inclusive and progressive to their current workforce. So I think that is one of the challenges. Companies may check the box and say, well, we sent three people to this you know, DE&I training last year. Well, did you take back and listen to them when they got back? And, and did, you, did you try to take action and or be responsive to some of the suggestions they had as to how to make your company a better place to work? And, and so I would encourage companies to do that because while it's great that you're sending people and investing in them, ideally, it's not only changing that person, but it's changing your company for the better. So there's got to be that, that kind of companion piece of how you're melding the two um, after you've made that great investment. Incredible advice, because I feel like we talk about similar topics around trade shows or, hey, a lot of the meaningful action is what takes place afterwards, because I've been there before, right? You come back from a conference, you're stoked, you're interested in implementing all these new things, and then slowly you get back into the grind, the way things are, and some of them putter off. So I think your advice around making sure you're taking advantage of that inspiration and turning it into meaningful change once women get back from these conferences, these events, is incredible advice. I have some questions around, let's say, your organization in general, because I'm really impressed with the growth of what you've done in recent years, because WIM has grown into a global organization with chapters around the world. So I'm curious, how do you create frameworks or systems that ensure individual chapters are consistent with the WIM mission and identity, but have, let's say, autonomy to serve their own unique regions. Yes, yeah, so our chapters have dramatically grown. And, you know, and thankfully, I had the, the great benefit of coming from a very mature trade association that I previously worked on. So I knew the chapter structure pretty well and kind of the what to do, what not to do as you set up or stand up chapters. 
So we have been very communicative and very um, formulaic in how we have established chapters so that we have that brand consistency and we have that that same kind of quality of programming and experience for our members, regardless of where they go in the country. So um, it, it's been something that, you know, very early on, we created a very structured framework. Um, we have um, very manual-like um, instructions of how chapters get started. Um, all of our chapters are creatures of us. So similar to my old organization as well, they all share our tax ID. So there's a lot of um, very uh, kind of responsible connectivity with us and our local chapters, which is nice. Um, so it helps with that quality control, with that communications flowing back and forth between our chapters to us. Um, it's a model we've been able to replicate now, as I said, in 32 local chapters. Our next chapter goes live here shortly um, in Iowa. And then we have another chapter starting probably in early 24 in Florida. So we have a wait list of chapters that want to get started. But again, we have a pretty robust process by which we kind of create and then launch a local chapter. Um, for international programs, you know, we have expanded internationally. We've got a thousand plus international members. You know, we're not ready yet in 13 years of being in existence to stand up formal entities in all these countries yet. That's a future endeavor. Um, so presently, what we're doing is we're leveraging our corporate members where they have facilities. And through their sponsorship and support, we are hosting international programs before we actually create that framework of international chapters. So we've created, um, you know, we've had our first international program in March of this year in Zweiburg in Germany. Our next one is actually October 10th in Barcelona, Italy, and the, or Barcelona, Spain. Why am I saying Italy? Um, and then we are heading from there to Tokyo and then Brazil and France and then back to Germany again in the spring of 24. So again, using corporate uh, members and their support and leveraging their networks to bring one to international members without yet that formal framework of chapters. I, and, and I know that you have your corporate members. And as we wrap up the interview, I want to ask you how that works. But before we get there, I, I have a couple more questions for you. First question is, since we're near the end of our conversation, is there anything you wish I would have asked you about the organization, about the trends we're seeing of women in industry that I haven't asked that you wish I would have. You know, I can't think of anything offhand. I would just, you know, encourage any listeners, uh, those manufacturing leaders that are, you know, committed and passionate around changing their organizations to be more inclusive, um, to, to connect with WIM. So if you're not already connected with us, I would encourage you to do so. We've got lots of resources and we're trying to make a manufacturing leader's life easier. So again, um, why, don't we recreate the wheel? We've got tons of things that you and your company can tap into. Um, lots of us practices as part of what our organization is committed to is, is connecting company to company so that you can benchmark with them and um, learn from their mistakes and not repeat that same thing and have success um, following some of their same protocols and practices. So I would Again, just encourage companies to connect with us. And I'm going to ask you how to do that in just a second. But my first question is, this is, uh, this is a question I wish I would have asked, but since we're still recording, I've got the opportunity to do it. Let's look inside the crystal ball. We, we mentioned at the start when WIM started, 23, 25% of women made up the manufacturing workforce, and that has increased um, over the past decade. What's your prediction for the next two to three years and then... To make sure this question's fair, what are the actions that people need to take to make sure that type of stuff happens? Yeah, so I, you know, I'm a very optimistic and positive person. So I always look at the glass as being half full. And I truly do believe in the next decade, and if not, maybe even sooner, 
we'll see an increased number of women in manufacturing. So I think I am positive it's going to grow beyond 30%. And I would encourage our listeners and companies and people connected to manufacturing um, to help us be ambassadors for manufacturing careers. You know, too few people understand what modern manufacturing is. And so, you know, this starts, we know, very early. And for us to have um, success in recruiting future generations, we have to be talking to people when they're in elementary school, when they're in early high school or technical school about manufacturing applications, pathways, and careers. So I'd ask all of our listeners to become an ambassador for the industry, to share your story, to share the stories of your members if you happen to work for an organization or association like I do. Um, but that's how we're going to change the narrative around manufacturing. They need this future generation needs to understand these great ways that you can make a very profitable living, have a very successful career in life by pursuing manufacturing. And so we try to accomplish that through our blog series, Here for Story. We've interviewed more than 60 women to share a day in the life, to ideally inspire other people to go into manufacturing. And then likewise, I host a podcast called Here for Story, where we talk to manufacturing executive women about their, their career in manufacturing to ideally spark and inspire um, individuals to either go for an advanced position or enter the industry altogether. And I'm going to make sure I link up to those things you mentioned in the show notes. I knew you had a podcast as well as uh, that was great advice around being ambassador for the industry. So my final question is I, we have we have WIM members that listen to this show, but there are probably people that are just getting familiar with you for the first time. So the question is, how do folks get involved? You've talked about corporate members. I'm sure people are asking themselves, hey, can I do this as an individual member? What if I'm an ally, right? What? How do I get involved? So in general, how do you answer that question as a final call to action for the audience? Yeah, so there is no shortage of ways to get involved with the Women Manufacturing Association. As I said, we've got 32 chapters across the country that you can volunteer in to be a local leader. They have local volunteer boards that, again, we are very blessed to have them because we have 250 plus volunteer leaders that give of their time and their passion and their talent to lead our local um, organizations. So chapter involvement is one way. Um, we also have student membership. We have retired professional membership, um, which are opportunities, again, for people looking at careers to get engaged with women to benefit from our directory and from our network. And then all, likewise for retired women to give back to the industry and to help mentor and coach and be a point of inspiration for future members. And um, we have our board of directors. So we have 20 amazing board directors members on our association board, 20 on our education foundation board. Um, so those are opportunities to serve and to lead and to also give input as to things that we could be working on. Um, so those are all opportunities. And, and then again, we're always looking for speakers and knowledge experts and people to serve on panels and to be spokespeople for the industry. So um, again, no shortage of ways that people can get involved. And obviously the first way would be to join. So to join as either an individual member or a corporate member or retired or student member of the organization. Well, I will have links to connect with women in manufacturing, to connect with Allison in the show notes for everyone listening today. Allison, I have to say, I think our mojitos are getting to the, the bottom of their glasses right now. So our interview is coming to the end, but I look forward to seeing all the great things that women in manufacturing continues to do. And thank you so much for taking the time to jump on the show today. Yeah, thanks for having me. Hey, thanks for listening. If you want to get involved with women in manufacturing, if you think someone in your network would benefit from getting involved, if you think your company should be involved, whatever that may be, hey, make sure you check out Allison's organization. I'll have links to all the resources we discussed over at the show notes page at manufacturinghappyhour.com slash 154. 
I also want to make sure I thank our sponsor this week, ePlan. Thank you for all you do for the show. And by the way, if you enjoyed this episode, share a link to the episode on LinkedIn, put it in an email, send it to a friend, and make sure you leave that five-star rating and review over at Apple Podcasts or Spotify. All of that is helpful. Thank you again for tuning in. Stay innovative, stay thirsty. We'll catch you again next week. Cheers. Thanks for listening to Manufacturing Happy Hour. Powered by the Industrial Network.